Hey guys, welcome to So What Else. I'm your host, Caitlin. As you guys know, So What Else is a story-based podcast about our shared human experience. So today we have Brittany Salmon on to share about her experience walking through the adoption of her two sons. Um, She shares about her book that she recently released. It's called It Takes More Than Love, which is a guide to navigating the complexities of cross-cultural adoption. We have such a fascinating conversation today. I learned so much from her and from her book about adoption in general, about transracial adoption, about things that we sometimes say that we think are very helpful, which are actually very not helpful. And just there's so much to it. She's very, very smart. She offers so, so much insight. And I know what you're probably thinking, like, okay, this probably, this interview doesn't really apply to me because I'm not part of the adoption triad, which is a term that I learned from reading her book. And the adoption triad means that you are either a birth parent, an adoptive parent, or an adoptee. And you might be thinking, okay, I'm none of those things, so this interview does not apply to me. I promise you it does, and I really encourage you to listen because if we think about it, all of us are connected to the adoption world in some way. Maybe we have a friend who is a foster parent. Maybe we have a friend who is a birth parent. Maybe we have a friend who is an adoptee. Maybe you're part of a church and you know people that are involved in this process. Whatever the case may be, there's so much in here about you know, terminology that's appropriate, things that are okay to say, things that are helpful, things that are not. I learned absolutely so, so, so much. And I know that you will too. So definitely stay tuned to listen to this. And if you enjoyed this conversation and you want more and you want to read Brittany's book, It Takes More Than Love, it is available on Audible. So feel free to go to audibletrial.com slash SWE. That's audibletrial.com slash SWE. And you can listen to her book on there. Okay. Hope you enjoy. Brittany, welcome to So What Else. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here today. Yeah. So you guys just moved. We did. We did. We moved from Abilene, Texas to Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, okay. So, so not a small, so not a small move. <laughs> that's a big move. So Abilene, that's so random. My, a good friend of mine who was actually on this podcast went to college there at Abilene Christian, I guess. Yeah. Or is ACU. That, okay. That's and now right. she's a professor there. Like she doesn't even live in Texas anymore though, but she does like distance, like whatever. So she teaches yes. like a seminar there. Yes. So I, that's my, that's my knowledge of Abilene. Hey, it's a great place. It's a great place to raise a family, and it's a lot of fun. How do you feel being in North Carolina? Is this your first time there, or is this back home for you, or what is it? So North Carolina is back home. So we did a six-year okay. stint in Texas. Okay. But um, my family's I was raised in Kentucky, but after I graduated college, I moved to Raleigh, North Carolina, and okay. I've spent the next 10 years there. I yeah. met my husband there, had our first three babies there, mm. um, and we moved to Texas six years ago. So although we're not moving back to Raleigh, moving back to Wilmington feels like home. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, my husband works for Samaritan's Purse, but we live huh? here in Jersey, but they're based down in North Carolina. So he's been traveling there a ton and he goes to, he's been to Boone. Yes, yeah, And he's like, and my husband is not like this at all because he's originally from Colorado. So he's like snobby about like pretty places. And he was in Boone, North Carolina. And he was like, this place is beautiful. Like we should move here. Boone is stunning. It's on the Western part of the state. I'm okay, on the yeah. East. I'm on the East coast. Like it's a beach town. Oh, so I'm nice. on the opposite, opposite end of the state, but we spent many anniversaries in the Boone area because it's so 
gorgeous out there. It's yeah. so gorgeous. Oh, that's so nice. That's so nice. So is it hot? It's hotter in Texas than North Carolina, right? So, oh, it's very hot in Texas right now. I feel like they've had more days over 100 than they ever have. It's the hottest summer in history currently. So we got out and we're in North Carolina, but it's not a dry heat here. It's humid because yeah. we're right on the ocean. So it's, yes. it's a different kind of heat. I get that because we're so we're here in Jersey, very humid, very wet heat. And we were just in Colorado visiting family for a week and it was still really hot there. Like a lot of the days were in the 90s, yeah. but it it didn't feel as oppressive without the humidity, you know, like yes. it definitely makes a difference. I mean, I've said it probably a dozen times this month. I'm like, I think I'd prefer like a hundred degree weather that's dry. I know. Than 80 and humid any day. Humid I'm is just so bad. And I just feel like I'm sweating. Whereas yes. it'd be a hundred degrees, but if I was in the shade, I was fine because it's so dry. No, totally. Yeah. I'm with you a thousand percent. Totally. Now you guys had a really horrible thing happened to you when you were moving. I saw on your social media. This has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about, but I have to hear about this. Yes. Yeah, so we, it has been a month. Ugh. It has been a month. But we got scammed by our movers. We hired an official moving company. Um, and, you know, you go online, you research, we, you do your research. You look at the reviews, you, you're making sure they have a DOT number, mm-hmm. make sure that they're, you know, that you're not getting scammed. And we still got scammed. Um, I mean, the FBI had to be involved. We had local police up in here. Oh. And I'm so grateful at the end of the day, we got 90% of our stuff back, um, oh. which is huge because we've yeah. heard horror stories in the last month as we've explored and researched sure. and tried to figure out what to do. People are like, yeah, I've never seen my stuff or I only got 40% of my stuff. Or there's one man in town in Wilmington who his, all of his stuff was gone, but that included his wife's ashes and his mother's ashes. Oh. I mean, you know, if you think about those stories, I mean, it's been, it was, we're so grateful and we're so lucky and we're so fortunate, but it was a rough month. That is we stressful. Did, we just, we thought we'd never see our earthly belongings, belongings again. I was like, well, oh. They're so gone. you guys just showed up here in North Carolina and your none of your stuff showed up. So we knew, I will say part of what was, I think, a good thing here was we slowly figured out by the end of the day, well, it was a two-day period when they were packing up our stuff, there were some red flags and we started doing some research, but okay. we knew for certain at the point when about 80% of our stuff was packed, the only, or actually probably 90% was packed. There's only a few things left in our house that the guy on site said, Hey, if you're, if you're going to like, like, this is too much stuff. Um, we need to double the price. And we're like, you can't do double. That. Yeah. You can't yeah. do that. Um, that's not legal, but we thankfully kind of just kept our cool and we didn't throw a fit yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and we actually hid trackers and the rest of our stuff and were able to keep eyes on it. And so, Smart. I mean, it was a whole deal. Um, but it was, it was a mess and but we, we, we found our stuff. We got our stuff. It was a, it was a big ordeal. What a situation. Oh yeah. man. I mean, I'm obviously glad you got most of it back, but yikes. Yes. Yes. It was. So we moved to Texas. We were like, well, who knows if we'll see our stuff again? And we had started doing the research to where we knew, actually, we were figuring out all the pieces on our drive the night before we drove away. We were like, mm. we've been scammed. Um, so <sighs> we we came to North Carolina. We were like, well, maybe we'll see our stuff again. Maybe we'll see half of it. Maybe they'll show up with it and try to extort us for more money. Sure, yeah. We, we kind of keep up with all the different options of what it was. And mm-hmm. thankfully, um, we got our stuff with, with some help. And um, it was a little adventurous. 
Wow. That's a story. Oh, man. It is a story for sure. (laughs) All right. So I know we've been chatting for a little bit, but why don't you introduce yourself to us? Who are you? What do you do? Tell everybody who is Brittany Salmon? Sure. Well, so it's kind of, this question is always a funny one because whenever I tell it like in person with people like, hey, what do you do? And I'm like, well, um, I wear a lot of a lot of different hats. Um, I'm a, I'm a wife and mother. We have four kids, um, two of which I birthed and two we adopted. And we're actually in the process of adopting baby number five. Mm. Um, but so I, I, that's my family hats, but I'm also a professor, um, at a university and I teach global studies there. I'm in cross-cultural communication. Um, I'm also a student. I'm a doctoral student. I'm trying to finish my doctorate. Um, but I'm also a writer and I help out with my husband. My husband owns and operates a local restaurant and I help out there and we just kind of, you know, do a a variety of different things. I I serve our local church. Sometimes I teach Bible studies and things like that. But, um, for, for the sake of it is I'm Brittany. I'm a mom. I'm a friend. I'm a normal human like everyone else with various, various jobs. (laughs) You are my hero. Side, side gigs. <laughs> Seriously though, like my hero, you have four kids and you're a doctoral student and you're a professor. That makes my head explode a little bit. Listen, and we, we have a lot of help. So you know, it's one of those things where part of the reason why we're moving back to Wilmington is being near family. So we can yeah. have yes. more support, be near grandparents and family and to kind of run, make this house run a little bit smoother than what it has the last six years. <laughs> totally. And you guys own a Chick-fil-A, right? We do. We do. My husband, like when he hears this, he'll be like, oh my gosh. Like that's like, (laughs) he, that was a big thing for him moving to Jersey was he was like, there's really no like Chick-fil-A in Jersey. (laughs) But then we happened to move in Jersey to a place where like the one Chick-fil-A in the state was. And he was like, it's Jesus. Like it was, it was meant to be. It was meant to be. There we go. You gotta love it. If he's ever in Wilmington, stop by. We can get him some chicken. He will. He absolutely will take you up on that. (laughs) I love it. All right. So your book, I just finished it. It's called It Takes More Than Love. It is a book about adoption. It was such a fast, quick, engaging read. I have to say, and like, I don't love reading nonfiction. My listeners know that. So like loved this book. It was amazing. But you know, it's not what people might think, right? When I say like, oh, it's a book about adoption. Like they're probably thinking it's all like butterflies and rainbows and like, it's so cute. Everyone should adopt. It's adorable. Love, love, love it. But I want to read the first page of your book out loud because it hooked me right away. You start the book with, I have a love-hate relationship with adoption. I know that's an odd sentence to start out an adoption book, and yet it's true. For a long time, I considered myself an adoption advocate, and yet over the years, I've found myself no longer comfortable with that label. Do I earnestly believe that every child should have a safe and loving family? Yes, absolutely. Do I believe that adoption is the only way to achieve that goal? No. Do I believe that the best option is for children to be raised safely within their birth families and cultures? Of course. Is that always an option? Sadly, no. Do I love adoption for allowing me the incredible honor of parenting our children? Yes. Do I hate the trauma and loss that adoption also brings? Yes. I just thought I could go on and on, but I just, I thought that was so powerful to start that way because you immediately call out from the first page. Like, obviously my husband and I are supporters of adoption. We've adopted two of our sons, you know, but it's, it's complicated. It's really complicated. Yes. Yeah. So, so what else is a story-based podcast? People come on and share their story. So I would love to just kind of start with you 
sharing your story. Tell us about how you and your husband decided to grow your family and how you kind of got to this place where you have a love-hate relationship with adoption. Yeah. Yeah. So we, I was say when I was a teenager, I actually found out that through a, um, quite a few medical issues that the, the likelihood of me having children was going to be slim. Okay. And, um, that I, I want to be sensitive to that because I know mm-hmm. a lot of women wrestle with infertility. Um, but me finding that out at a, such a young age, mm-hmm. it was actually not traumatic at all. I was like, okay. well, oh, well, yeah. if that happens, if that's the case, no big deal. And, um, but from that early age on, it, it kind of forced me to start create, creatively thinking, okay, what are some other ways I could build a family if I want to have kids and am unable to? Mm-hmm. And so I never really had to grieve that per se, but that was a part of my story from early on. And even whenever I would be in a dating relationship or things would get serious with a guy in college, I'd say, hey, just so you know, up front, the likelihood that I can have children biologically is slim mm-hmm. um, and, and without serious medical intervention. And I'm, and I'm not really interested in going down that road. I'd rather, for me personally, um, I feel called to, if I'm going to invest that sort of money to invest it Mm -hmm. um, in a child who needs a home. And so that was just kind of part of who I was from very early on. And so when I met my husband, Ben, he was like, he never really thought about adoption before, but he was like, sure, that sounds great. Mm -hmm. And so we just started learning about adoption and we attended a a larger church in the Raleigh area that had a strong orphan care and prevention ministry. Um, So a lot of our friends were adopting internationally. This was probably in the like early 2010s. And mm-hmm. there was a lot of strong marketing, positive language about adoption at the time, especially in Christian spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we kind of were being formed by this mentality of like adoption is awesome. If you can do it, you should. Um, and we had decided that's what we were going to do. Lo and behold, two years into our marriage, um, I wasn't feeling well and I couldn't figure out why. <laughs> uh. And so I eventually went to the doctor and turns out I was pregnant. Um, and we were, I mean, we were just floored, absolutely floored. Um, and then to find out that it was twins, we were shocked even more. (laughs) Our minds were just like blown, completely blown. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we were blessed with our girls, Felicity and Noel. Their birthday was yesterday. They just turned 10. Um, and, uh, but a few years after they were born, we were like, you know what? Um, I still feel like very called and that language is kind of flowery, but, um, what I mean by that is is to say, like, I felt passionate about, um, making sure that our family was open to the possibility of welcoming a child through adoption. And so mm-hmm. we just kept thinking about that and praying about it. And we just kind of looked at each other one day and said, yep, let's do that. If we're going to grow our family, let's let's continue to grow our family through adoption. And so mm-hmm. that's what we pursued. Um, we started out pursuing international, mm-hmm. um, but we had a friend locally adopt domestically, which just means that they adopted in the States instead of outside of the States. Mm-hmm. And um, she was talking about the agency that they were using was in desperate need actually for families who are willing to accept a wide variety of children, whether that's um, different ethnicities, diff- different medical statuses, mm-hmm. things like that. And we said, you know what? We can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's a need here, if there's a need, and we were in North Carolina, Carolina at the time when we started that, um, let's do it. And so mm-hmm. we pursued our first adoption with that agency and we welcomed our son Jude um, as an infant. And we have an open adoption with his first family. And then a few years later, after we moved to Texas, um, we pursued adoption again mm-hmm. and we did it domestically and welcomed our son Zeke, who is currently two and a half mm-hmm. um, and have an open adoption with his um, first mom and first family. And um, we're currently in the waiting period. Our, we're home city ready for for 
baby number five, but adoption number three for us. And so that's kind of the story of how our family has been formed and is still being formed. Yeah, totally. Now for this next baby, could it be like you get a call and the baby's there that day or like how, how does it go? Okay. So it could be that fast. It could be that one of our children, that was their story. Another one, we were matched with the first mom months in advance. And so it could be either, or it could be the agency calling and say, Hey, we have a birth mom here. Who's looked at your profile. She'd love to meet with you. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so it could be be a number one of those things, but, um, but we, I will say we've done both. And so far what we've learned in adoption is every adoption is unique. Mm-hmm. Every adoption has its own story. And so um, we're just along for the ride and open for it. We're, yeah. we're open up to whatever the Lord has for us. And we're like, well, you said, yes, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. So you said that you have open adoptions with mm-hmm. both of your son's first families. Can you, what exactly does that look like? What is that? If someone has no clue, like, tell us about that. Sure. So an open adoption is essentially where an agency is no longer mediating the relationship between the first family and the adoptive family. Um, And that could be, you know, through grandparent, first family, biological grandparents, or it could just be the biological birth mother. Mm -hmm. Um, For us, it has been different in both instances, but for us, what it looks like is instead of sending pictures to our adoption agency, it means I text our kids first moms and I say, look what they did today, or it's their birthday. We're thinking about you. Um, And we, we've developed a relationship from there. It started Mm -hmm. as texting. Sometimes we Marco Polo, um, but we have at least yearly visits with them Mm -hmm. where we see them in person. And um, we have decided for us, um, we are as open as they want to be. Yeah. Um, the first families want to be um, within a healthy boundary as, as long as things are healthy, as long as things are, mm-hmm. um, you know, going smooth sailing. We're like, hey, come on, let's let's get yeah. let's actually have as much connection as possible because we believe and research shows that an open adoption and allowing a child to have access to their origin story and their first family really helps with identity development mm-hmm. in those teen years. And so um, we're hoping that by maintaining those relationships um, with the hopes that one day our children will be in charge of those. So they'll mm-hmm. have the they'll have permission when they are teenagers and adults to say, actually, this is what I want to do with this. This mm-hmm. is this is how I want to do this. But we can maintain those things and as a gift to them, so that when they are old enough, they can say, this is this is what I want from this, and this is this is what I'm hoping for from this. Totally. And you had a really special experience with Zeke's bio mom, right? And you were in yes. the hospital with her, like yes. with her as she was laboring and all of that. Yes. And, and in the days after, which that must be really special, you know, that it was, you got to do that. It was a, such a gift. Um, and, and, you know, I think a lot of times adoption agencies are hesitant on matching people too soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, Zeke's birth mom, and I, I don't want to speak on her behalf, but I don't, she doesn't mind me sharing this part of the story. Um, she was adamant that she wanted to know the family that she was placing um, mm-hmm. her child into. And she wanted to have a good relationship with them. And so we were matched really early on. And I took it. And I, I think there's a, the fear in that is that um, maybe people will get like adoptive families might get too attached and mm-hmm. then might be disappointed. And as an adoptive parent, I remember sitting down with her multiple times and saying, hey, I need you to know that if you change your mind after you birth your child, we are for you a mm. thousand percent. 
and we are for you parenting. That is our first and best choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're here if you if you still think that no, this is the best for the child. We are here and we're open for that. And that was really important for me to be able to say that multiple times to her, um, so that she never felt coursed. She never mm-hmm. felt like, well, I've gotten to know and love this family, and I'm going to be disappointing them sure. if I don't follow through with this. Um, I wanted her to have the freedom to make the best decision for her and her baby um, and to have that clarity and without any doubt of going later on, well, I wonder if she could ever, or I wonder if I could have, I wanted to give her as many offerings as possible to parenting. Yeah. Um, and I'm so grateful that we had the time to develop that relationship, but also to be able to say those things mm-hmm. um, that I didn't get to do with Jude's first mom. But but at the same time, it doesn't make his story any Sure. More or less special. It's just different. Yeah. It's just different. Absolutely. So your book focuses a lot on transracial adoption. So you and your husband and your daughters, you're white. Jude huh? is black. Zeke is he's Hispanic and um he's so he's Puerto Rican and Native American. Okay. Okay. So Somewhere along the way, like when you first, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so correct me if I'm wrong, but when you first adopted Jude, it seemed like you, you know, from what I gather in your book, you were just like, yeah, like adoption, we love him, like this is so great, raising him, love it. And somewhere along the way, you kind of realized like, wow, there's like some differences to a transracial adoption as opposed to like if we had just adopted a white kid. Like there's differences here that I wasn't necessarily aware of when we came into it. And it was like a huge learning process for you. Talk to me a little bit like about that. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things where in order to adopt transracially, we did have to have a couple of training classes, but it was more like how to navigate hard conversations in the grocery store, how, okay. how to, you know, do these things. And they were very basic, lower mm-hmm. level things. And I had read all the books and I was reading books on racism and I was reading mm-hmm. books on um, being a multicultural family, but there really wasn't a resource out there that said, Hey, transracial adoptive families, this is going to be tough. And here, here's an open picture of what this looks like and what you'll need to do with tangible steps, which is why this book was birthed. But, um, Early on, I remember rocking Jude one night and it was a few months in, but he was still a tiny baby. And I was just like, I looked at his dark skin against my light skin. And we had had multiple just experiences where good intended people said horrible things. Mm -hmm. Um, Some in our church, some in our families, some in our close friends, some in acquaintances. And um, I just remember thinking this feeling this overwhelming weight of how am I going to do this? This, our family loves this child more than words can express, but I'm not a black mom Mm -hmm. and I, and my husband's not a black man. And how are we supposed to bridge this gap for him of him being a black man in America? Sure. How do we equip him to do that? Um, And we are going to fail him. And, and, And as I worked through that and I processed And I talked to adult adoptees and I talked to other first families and I talked to um, our black friends and our Hispanic friends and our Asian friends and started having these conversations. What I came to realize is I cannot gift my kids a healthy racial identity. I can't do that for them. I can't build it for them. As a white woman, I I don't have the skill set. I don't have the personal experiences with racism. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I can do is I can build a bridge 
to their for, first culture, I can refuse to erase their first culture. Yeah. I can welcome their first their first first culture into our home, mm-hmm. into our community, so that my child along the way can gain tools, not just from me and my husband, but from people in their first culture mm-hmm. and their, their community, mm-hmm. so where they can help develop and put that skill set together to help build a healthy racial identity, um, whether they're Black, Asian, Hispanic, um, regardless of ethnicity, if they're different from ours, um, even like a white Romanian, if we had adopted a white Romanian child, yeah. we would want to pursue that, even though our skins might match, we'd still want to connect them to their first culture because that's important and it has value. And yeah. we, and, and for me as a believer, I'm a Christian. Um, I believe that, you know, God created all people equally, that ethnicities are a beautiful reflection of God's good design. Mm-hmm. And so instead of making this thing, something that we're like, we just don't talk about it. We're like, no, we need to celebrate this. Mm-hmm. This is something that we celebrate because it is good because mm-hmm. it's a part of God's good design in our kid's life. And so um, we've just taken that approach since then, but it was something that we kind of had to not just know, but live out mm-hmm. um, and stumble and fall and make mistakes. Um, but we really had to wrestle pretty hard to come to that conclusion early on in our adoption journey. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, a section of your book that I really loved is that, you know, it might sound really trite, but you talk about how parents need to make sure that they are aware of how to care for their child, like beauty needs, you know, and especially if it's, if they are a race or a culture that's different than yours, like that's going to take some work. And you had some essays in there from adult adoptees. I just like loved it. Tell us a little bit about that and why that's so important. Well, um, so when I, I, when I was first asked to write this book, I, this was not a book that I was like, Ooh, I've been sitting on this and I really want to write it. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody worked from a publishing company and they, they, they knew me, they knew I was a writer and they knew my story. And they're like, Hey, we see this gap here. Would you be willing to write a book on it? And as I prayed about it and thought about it, I thought I cannot write a book without including adoptee voices. Like there's, yeah. there's, there should not be a book on a, another ad- book on adoption by a, an adoptive parent without adoptive voices. I also really wanted to get um, birth mom voices in there. Mm-hmm. And for a number of reasons that didn't work out as mm-hmm. well. Um, but I had a handful of adoptees who were willing to share some of their stories. Mm-hmm. And the really cool thing about their essays was I didn't tell them what to write it at all. I didn't, mm-hmm. even, I didn't tell them. I didn't give them an outline of my book. I told them where I was going mm-hmm. and I told them my vision behind the book. And I basically said, I want you to write from your personal experience, anything that you'd be willing to share with mm-hmm. a hopeful adoptive parent or an adoptive parent currently. Yeah. Um, and we'll just see where it fits. And I was just trusting that the Lord would bring together the, the essays appropriately. And I was floored. Yeah. I mean, I was floored when they came in because I'd already, as they started coming in, I had had my outline and my chapters all lined out and we moved them around and they fit. Mm-hmm. perfectly with the content that we had. I mean, it was wild. That's so cool. That's so cool. So, I mean, uh, something that was, I feel like so striking about those essays is that there was like girls that would say things like, you know, I'm a black girl raised by white parents and I love my parents and they loved me and like whatever. But I grew up just like hating my hair. Like yeah. I hated it and I hated how I looked. And it took me until I was an adult to realize, you know, that, I could do my hair like this or I could, you know what I mean? And it's like the parents, obviously they didn't intend to make anyone feel bad, but they, 
they just were kind of raising, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it just kind of seemed like they were raising this black kid to be white. Yeah. Well, I think, I think the colorblind mentality of love is enough Mm -hmm. and all it takes is love. And they're just going to be a part of our family and we're just going to figure it out. Yes. Um, that's the book is fighting that narrative yes. because what we have discussed is as adult, as we've learned from adult adoptees who've been raised in families like that, it's not that their parents said, Hey, your hair is ugly right. or Hey, it's that, but they did hear maybe, Oh, it's so difficult to do your hair or, mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know how to do it. Or, Oh, you know, these, there was never like necessarily always negativity, but there might not have also been like, tools to learn how to care for their hair, mm-hmm. tools to affirm, hey, you're beautiful. God made you with beautiful dark skin and mm-hmm. your curly hair is to die for. Mm-hmm. Like that wasn't said over them. It, there was no like, I love doing your hair. Hey, this is how we take care of our hair. And so as I've listened to adult adoptees and as we've read books by them, and, and that was one thing that I was like, we need to include this mm-hmm. in the book because Parents need to know that it's not just about making sure your kid has a taken to the right barbershop and um, that their hair is done right. It's mm-hmm. making sure that we are affirming their beauty, mm-hmm. their unique cultural beauty, mm-hmm. and that there's space for that in our homes for them to express themselves, for them to know how to care for themselves, and that it's affirmed and celebrated, mm-hmm. not just tolerated or even just like let, allowed to exist, but it's affirmed, it's celebrated, it's welcomed. And we're all learning about it here. And we're all, we're all figuring it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a good and holy thing. Not something that's, we're just like, oh, well, yeah, you we'll got tolerate white parents. It. Yeah. We got white parents. Sorry. Yeah. that We're not doing that. Totally. Totally. You mentioned colorblindness. I want to talk about that a little bit. You know, it's just like, so crazy because, you know, for sure my parents' culture, uh, generation, but also my generation, our generation was raised that that was like, that was the goal, you know, yeah. like we should be colorblind, like color does not matter, you know, and like that was what we were doing, you know, yes. like, and that was what we were taught, well-intentioned, but we now know better. So we do better. You talk about that a lot in your book. Like once you know better, you need to do better. And so now we do. So talk to me about why being quote unquote colorblind is a problem. Yeah. You know, I, I love that quote by Maya Angelou that, mm-hmm. you know, once you know better, you do better. Um, but I think part of it is that colorblind mentality was taught and, and maybe sometimes it is good intentioned, but also sometimes it can be used as an excuse not to do the work for the problem. Mm-hmm. Because it, if we're all honest with ourselves, um, we all see color. Yeah. We all, we all see different ethnicities. We mm-hmm. all recognize different cultures and, and not even different color of skins. I recognize that when somebody from a different ethnicity is coming into the room and talking in a different language and dressed in their cultural attire, like mm-hmm. you can recognize those things. And we were taught, I, I believe, and this is, um, there could be a, a, I'm not a diagnosing intentionality, but I think one intention could be in order to avoid racism, we're just not going to talk about it. Sure. We're not going to talk about different ethnicities. We're not going to recognize it. And I do believe I have, I've had a lot of dear and good friends say, but I, I don't want to have to see color. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think color should matter. I don't think it should matter in hiring practices. I don't think it should matter in home loans. But even today in 2022, we are well aware that research show, research shows that there is still racial bias and racism in hiring practices. Mm-hmm. Color of skin still impacts the way that people are hired. It, it can impact your, your loan, um, getting approved 
pre-approved for a loan, it mm-hmm. impacts a number of things. Um, and so we can't have a colorblind approach because the world isn't actually colorblind. Right. So it's more helpful. And one thing I've learned from my brothers and sisters of who have been teaching on race, especially I listed a few in the book, but a lot of pastors mm-hmm. and educators on racism who are men and women of color is, hey, a better approach is to see and celebrate color. Mm-hmm. It's celebrated. And when we see racism, let's fight to end it and let's work to better our practices. But just not seeing color is a a privilege that only white people have. Mm -hmm. And it's not even true because we all know that we really do see color. So instead, let's work to make sure that color doesn't matter in hiring practices. Mm -hmm. Let's celebrate the cultures that people come from. Let's see and affirm and say, hey, your, your culture is good. Um, because God made it good, uh, mm-hmm. because he made this world a beautiful, diverse world. And when we all get to heaven, I believe that it's not going to be a bunch of white people up there. Yeah. Or it's not going to be a bunch of Americans. We're going to have all different tribes, nations, and tongues up in heaven. Um, and so as a believer, we can say there's a biblical argument for seeing diversity, for celebrating mm-hmm. diversity, yeah. and affirming that in our kids. And if we can do that in our culture, in our communities, as adoptive families, we need to do it in our families. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we've got to celebrate diversity and celebrate different cultures and um, in our family from an early age. And, and I, I believe that for transracial adoptive families, but also if you're a monocultural family, if you can do that with your kids mm-hmm. um, from an early age, man, um, what a gift it is to your brothers and sisters who don't share the same ethnicity as you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're setting your kids up for, for success and working and living in a globally diverse, connected world. Totally, totally. I want to read one more section of your book that really struck me. It says, as adoptive parents, whether it's through transracial or transcultural adoption or both, it is vital that we see our children's ethnicities because they are God-ordained, beautiful expressions from a good and holy creator. Ignoring them or pretending they don't exist prohibits you from celebrating how your your unique child reflects Imago Dei. As Christians, we believe that all people are made in the very image of God, and that truth is special because out of all the things that God created, humans are the only ones stamped, imprinted with God's almighty with God Almighty's likeness. I thought that was just so beautiful because it's so true. You know, it's like we. So many people that, like you said, are well-intentioned with the colorblindness and they're like, no, I don't think that color should matter. We're not celebrating something that was God-ordained, God-created. It's beautiful, you know? So we don't need to ignore it. It's a beautiful thing. It's not a bad thing, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I just, I really loved that. Another thing that I thought was very interesting in your book that I had never thought of was that you talked a lot about... um, like the savior complex that can sometimes be present with adoptive parents. And you talked about ways that sometimes we respond to adoptive parents that can be problematic. Would you talk to us a little bit about that, like the savior complex thing? Yeah, well, I will say, so the savior complex started not necessarily in adoption circles. It actually, the term kind of developed in mission circles. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also just like, um, not just Christian missions, but like international um philanthropy. Yeah. Like any of those, any of those like, you know, nonprofit events, things like that. What happened was a lot of people wanting to do good, Mm -hmm. um, good intentions would go into other cultures 
and, and it was typically Western people. They'd go into, um, you know, a third world country to help and they would come in short term. And rather than partnering with the locals to see what would work, they'd be like, I'm gonna build a school. I'm gonna build a well. I'm gonna do these great things. Look how awesome I am. Um, but then it turns out years later, um, because systems and the community wasn't involved and other things weren't in place, that those things were ineffective and those groups were abandoned eventually mm-hmm. uh, because they weren't partnering with local communities. And they, people were coming in as saviors trying to fix it mm-hmm. rather than learning from boots on the ground and other people going, hey, what? how can I be a part of that? Mm-hmm. So we take that mentality and it's simply somebody coming into a situation going, I'm going to fix this situation. I'm going to save us. Mm-hmm. I'm going to save us all. Um, and I can make it better. I have all the answers. Um, and then we kind of market it, and especially with social media, the way we post about trips, the way we mm-hmm. t- post about adoption and things. Mm-hmm. It's, it's centering the story around us instead of centering it around the issue mm-hmm. or centering it um, around a lot of local people doing a lot of good work. So in adoption circles, especially in the probably like early 2000s and like two, up to probably 2012, a lot of our marketing um, to to encourage families to take place in foster care and adoption practices, a lot of it started using language that like adoption is beautiful or you can change the life of a child or it's a lot of that was centering and celebrating the adoptive parents mm-hmm. while really erasing the dignity um, and participation of the first families as yeah. well and ignoring even the dignity of our children. Mm-hmm. And it, it kind of almost viewed children as a commodity or a people victims needing to be saved um, rather than just other fellow humans on earth who are in a situation who maybe we can, maybe together we can meet a need. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's, it's more about posture and the way we talk about it. Mm-hmm. It's more about motive, our hearts, how, how, you know, what is our motive behind this? Um, but in adoption circles, especially online, really quickly adoptive parents started going, getting on social media, you know, look at this awesome thing we're doing. Look at our awesome family, especially with transracial adoption. Cause you see it's obvious. A, it's obvious because there's mm-hmm. different ethnicities represented, but the storyline all of a sudden shifts to center and to elevate an adoptive parent on the backs of a first family or your children and or your children both. And so um, there's a savior mentality in adoption that adoptive parents are heroes and birth families, well, shame on them for ever being in a situation where their children would either be taken away or they'd have to terminate Mm -hmm. or they'd have to um, willingly place their child for adoption. Shame on them. Who would do that? Mm -hmm. I mean, I I obviously don't believe that. I want to be clear on that. When you hear that sort of language in certain circles and, oh, that poor adopted child, you see it. And whenever we're out at a church and somebody says to my son, Jude, Mm -hmm. who's black and says, oh, you're so lucky to have your mommy and daddy. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Stop. No, stop. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't, you wouldn't say that to my biological children. Right. Um, Why would you say that to my adopted children? Mm -hmm. And so we can see this in a number of different ways, but it's just this idea that adoptive parents are heroes. Mm -hmm. Um, adoptees are victims and the bio families are villains, uh, essentially. And that's, that is not healthy. It's Mm -hmm. not accurate. And even in the worst case scenario where a first family has their parental rights terminated because they've put their children in, in, in harm's way, even still compassion and care, Mm -hmm. um, can be given towards them to say, you know, I don't know their story. Mm -hmm. I don't know what happened to them in their childhood. Mm-hmm. I don't know what resources they had available, but I do know that they didn't have the same resources I had. And so I'm not going to judge them because mm-hmm. I don't know what I would have done if I were in their shoes. Yeah. Um, and so there's a, 
there's just this reality that we're all on the same playing field. And again, as a Christian, biblically, we know that all humans are created equal, um, that all of us are equal at the foot of the cross. Mm -hmm. Um, None of us, all of us have sinned. Um, None of us can earn our righteousness and goodness. Mm -hmm. Um, We all claim redemption and healing and restoration um, through Christ. And so I can look over at my children's first families, who I have an immense amount of respect for. Um, our kids' birth moms are heroes. Mm-hmm. They are they're the furthest thing from villains from my mind. They are phenomenal humans. Um, they they are if anyone is a hero in the story, which is hero talk is probably not helpful, it'd be them. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the ones who carried children, gave them life, and chose mm-hmm. a healthy family. Mm-hmm. Um, we're the lucky ones to get to parent our kids every day. And so um, it's just one of those things where we're, we have to, we have to look out and even the worst case scenarios and say, Hey, we're, we're all equal here at the mm-hmm. foot of the cross. Yeah. Um, we are all humans. We all make mistakes. Mm-hmm. We all hope and believe goodness and mercy. And for stories that are redeemed and, and full of just God's goodness. And as so we believe that for ourselves, we believe that for our kids, mm-hmm. but we also believe that for their first families. And that yeah. really helps us fight against this mentality of like, Look how awesome we are. Mm-hmm. We are we are these awesome people doing a really good thing, adopting children. That's that's not that is a horrible narrative in adoption mm-hmm. circles. I just think that's so beautifully said and so interesting. Cause like truly for me, when I was reading that whole section, I was like, oh my gosh, like I I've probably done this stuff. Like, you know what I mean? It's like it's so you you think like this is such a compliment, right? Like you see someone who's adopted and you're like, you are amazing. You are so amazing for doing that. Like you are so fantastic. And it's like, if you're saying that, especially in front of the child, like what is the child going to internalize? Like, oh, I'm a huge freaking hardship. Like, wow. Like people are telling my mom that she's a hero, that she took me in. And it's like, uh, just like you said, people wouldn't say that about our biological kids. They're not like, oh my goodness, you're such a hero for having a baby. No one says that to me. You know, no, no one. I mean, I've had twins, and no right. one has said. No one said, Brittany. Oh my word, girls! You better thank your mom. I mean, no one said that. No, it's so true. It's so true. And so it's like you don't even realize, or like you know, churches will sometimes have like Sunday dedicated to yes. like you know praising adoptive parents. And it's like, oh, like stand up. Like if you've adopted, this is, and everyone's giving them a round of applause. And it's like, what are the kids internalizing from that? Like, uh, and I think everyone thinks of adoptees as children, but there's a reality like, no, they, children grow into teenagers and they become adults. And then also, gosh, I hope our churches are safe spaces for birth families. So what if we're celebrating this? Well, there's a family in our church who just had their rights terminated as parents, but they're working hard to get their lives on track so that they can maybe be good parents one day. Like yeah. we, we only think about it from our little perspective, Yeah, but man, may the church of God be a place where adoptees, birth families, women who have willingly placed their children and women who have unwillingly had their yeah. rights terminated where they can show up and say, man, I'm welcome here. And mm-hmm. I don't feel any shame. Mm-hmm. I don't feel any shame from the body of Christ because I know who I am in Christ. Yeah. And when we do those things from the stage, we have good intentions, but we mm-hmm. have to think about what does this say to other people involved in adoption? And it's not just adoptive families. Mm-hmm. We've got to think about the women. We've got to think about single moms. We have to think about adoptees. We have to think about our children in foster care who 
honestly might rather be with their first families than be with their adoptive families. And it's a sore subject for them yeah. because they've experienced so much trauma of being ripped from their first homes. Mm-hmm. We, we have to have a, a, a fuller picture of adoption um, mm-hmm. in our churches. And, and, and part of that might mean for a while that adoptive parents stand up and say, we don't want to be celebrated. Mm-hmm. We are not heroes. We want to be partnered with. Mm-hmm. And let's see what we can do to partner with people in our community to make sure that these families are taken care of, that these kids are taken care of. Um, but let's not make it about us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another term that I heard you use in the book that I was like, I've never heard this before, and I love this, was when you explained spiritual bypassing. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that to us? And then we'll like link it to how it relates to adoption specifically. Sure. Okay. So I have to tell you this, that chapter was far too long. I actually had so much content. It's my favorite. I um, loved it. The section on spiritual passing, we, we cut out so much content, um, but really spiritual bypassing, um, it is a, it is a term that psychologists use, mm-hmm. um, but we also still see it in, in, I could, well, I'll use a scriptural example, example here in a second, but it's the concept of when we take a situation that is hard, a trauma, a crisis. And we just essentially will say, let's say in adoption circles, um, an adoptee is wrestling with the trauma from adoption. Mm-hmm. And maybe a pastor says, well, you know what? God's will is good for your life. He obviously is for your good. Um, and you know what? Satan meant for evil. The Lord's going to use it for good. And so I just think you should be content. And mm-hmm. I think you should just love your parents and be grateful for what the Lord has done. Cause what, what, I mean, think about where you'd be if you were still with your first family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's one of those things where they, we use spiritual truths, like the phrase, um, like I said, they're from Joseph, what, what, um, Satan means for evil, God means for good. Mm-hmm. We use a spiritual truth to actually skip over the work of healing. Yeah. And so we are spiritually bypassing actually the work that the Lord has called us to and the journey that, that the Lord has on us to work through some of these heartaches, the trauma, um, and we're using a spiritual Bible verse or a term or a concept just to jump through. Um, in, in scripture, in the story of Joseph, what I love about the story is you the phrase that the story of is what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good, is what Joseph says at the end of his story. Mm-hmm. Many years have yes. passed. Many years have passed by. But Joseph in the in scripture we know was taken from his family, sold by his brother. They actually were plotting his death, but decided to sell him. He went into Potiphar's house and was a slave and then was accused of sexual assault, falsely, thrown in jail. Um, and all of these bad things kept happening to Joseph. He'd get kind of stable and something bad would happen. And in the scripture, when you're studying it, I love it because it says, and the Lord was with Joseph. Mm-hmm. The Lord was with Joseph. And it keeps saying that over and over again. What you don't see in the scripture is God is using this evil for good. You don't see that yet. Mm-hmm. Joseph has not come to, the re- that, to, that, recolla- to that like revelation in the middle of the story. Mm-hmm. It's at the end, at the very end, after when he was elevated by the king and he was reunited with his family. And we're talking decades have passed. And Joseph says, when his brothers essentially apologize, hey, what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. Mm-hmm. And so spiritual bypassing is forcing that end story years later, the here and now. Yes. So when you're so when you're dealing with adoption, that truth that what God, what Satan means for evil, God God means for good, that is true. It's true here and now. But you're not using it 
to beat somebody into being good or yes. to feeling better about their situation. Um, and, and what happens in adoption is we basically tell adoptees and we tell adoptive parents even whenever the story is hard. Oh, God's going to use this for good. God's going to use it for good. But we wouldn't do that. We would not do that to a widow who just lost her husband and kids mm-hmm. in a car accident. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't say, hey, you should really be grateful. Did you know mm-hmm. for the time that you had there, you, you should be grateful for this story. Well, Satan uses for evil. God's going to use this for good. You mm-hmm. wouldn't say that because that's a callous statement mm-hmm. to tell somebody in the middle of their fresh grief. Mm-hmm. But we so often we do that to adoptees. Yeah. And so often we do it to adoptive parents who are working through some hard things. Mm-hmm. We say, hey, God's got this. And he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there's not work here and now mm-hmm. to process through our grief, to process through our hurt, process through our pain, to reach out and get licensed counselors and mm-hmm. therapists and behavioralist specialists and medical specialists all on board mm-hmm. to help us deal with our crisis and sorrow right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned trauma. I think that's uh, a common misconception with adoption is that people think that if you adopt a child from infancy, or if they're still a baby, then you've saved them from any kind of trauma. But you talk about in the book how that's not actually true. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. And listen, I'm not a medical scientist at all. <laughs> I, have, I have I have degrees. None of them are in science. Okay. <laughs> However, there are there is research supporting now that babies can feel pain in the womb mm-hmm. as early as 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. And research has been done that babies separated from their mothers at birth. Mm-hmm. Their cortisol level drops. It changes. Mm-hmm. They know that they've been separated. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sometimes how you have to be careful and make sure that that's why a lot of adoptive families cocoon very mm-hmm. early on. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of skin-to-skin contact. There's a lot of making sure that there's not failure to thrive mm-hmm. for infants separated from their first moms. It's There's a lot of intentionality on that end. And it's because just because a baby was separated at infancy from birth does not mean that there's no trauma because they, they, they've experienced any trauma in the womb. Mm-hmm. Um, they've experienced trauma at separation mm-hmm. and they're going to experience, especially with the transracial adoption, they're experiencing the trauma of growing up with people going, wait, that's your mom. Mm-hmm. What happened to you? You have to relive that trauma over and over again because it's visible. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's an idea that was passed around like, well, if you adopt a child from infancy, that'll really save you. That'll really save you from some of the hardship later on. And that's just not true. Mm-hmm. It's just not true. Yeah, absolutely. Um, something you talk a lot about in the book is holding space for both sorrow and joy at the same time. How do you do that like practically in your house with your boys and your kids and everything? Yeah, that was something we learned early on when our my first hospital experience with Jude was um, I was so excited to see him and meet him. And like, you're overjoyed mm-hmm. uh, to meet your son. Um, but then at the same time, you're watching a woman say goodbye yeah, and um, watching her leave a hospital empty arms. And I have said this many times in, in close conversations, with friends, but some of the hardest days of my life were discharge days for adoptions. Yeah. Um, I get emotional remembering those days. Um, is a lot of trauma involved. Mm-hmm. And um, at the same time, here I was loving on a baby, overjoyed, mm-hmm. and they were my son. And so very quickly in adoptions and in, into the, our adoption journey, we had to quickly learn that I could be thrilled 
and devastated at the same time. And so we kind of took that approach and carried it on to our kids. And so practically it's when Mother's Day comes around, Mm -hmm. I'm going, hey kids, hey, do you want to leave your first mom a message? Mm -hmm. Let's write them a card. Let's do these things. Hey, it's their birthday. Let's do this. But it's also saying, hey, does it, how does this make you feel? Mm. Do you, do you feel weird about it? Do you feel sad? Mm -hmm. Do you feel happy? What emotion are you feeling right now when they're little? You know, it's one of those things where they they don't have the words to articulate. They're not going to say, mom, I feel very awkward doing this. I'm confused why I'm doing this on Mother's Day. Um, So it takes a lot of intention on the front end, Mm -hmm. setting up space to, so there's freedom there to say, hey, it's your birthday. Mm -hmm. What what would you like to do? Or your birthday is coming up. Would you like to call your first mom? Or would you like to call her the night before? Mm -hmm. Um, What would you like to do here? Mm -hmm. Or are you sad that she's not here? Um, and even in moving to North Carolina, I quickly, there was a, we had talked to our kids, um, cause neither one of their, their first families lived in Abilene, Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll actually be moving back from Carolina, we'll be closer to one of them. Mm-hmm. And I had said like, Hey, this is exciting. We'll get to probably see them more often. Mm-hmm. And, um, they were super excited about that. But then we were moving all of a sudden packing up stuff. Um, our son was like, Hey mom, um, are you going to bring the corkboard? And what I was like, the corkboard, what are you talking about? Cork, the corkboard in my bedroom. And I said, yes, of course I'm going to bring your corkboard on your bedroom. But the corkboard on his bedroom is where we have in pictures of important people in our lives. Mm-hmm. We have first family pictures. We have pictures of us with them. We have mm-hmm. gifts, letters that they've sent pinned up there. We also have enough friends and family in Abilene and in North Carolina and Kentucky. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's where his precious things from his first family were. And yeah. what he was wanting to make sure was that stuff that his gifts from his first family and were coming with us. Now mm-hmm. imagine our heartache when we were going through the moving scam going, oh no, uh, <laughs> we said, we said that your stuff would be here and uh, it's not. Um, and so having that conversation of, hey, we packed all of your stuff from your first family and we are praying that we get it back again. Oh, um, but just making space for how everyone feels about it. And and not being afraid of hard conversations or them missing a first family, but welcoming it, going, this is natural. Yeah. You shouldn't feel other for missing your first family on this day. Yeah. That is totally okay. And if you never miss your first family, great. Okay. But I want you to know if you do, we're okay with that. And yeah. we're going to make space on holidays. And if there's big feelings going on, we're going to make sure that we press in a little bit mm-hmm. and say, hey, how are you feeling? Are mm-hmm. you feeling sad about this? Do you wish that they had called you? Are you sad that they didn't call? Mm-hmm. Um, and asking those things proactively to create a healthy balance where we're we're celebrating the day, we're celebrating the thing, but we can still be pumped about this and sad about this over there. And we can mm-hmm. we can basically walk and chew gum at the same time. We can mm-hmm. do two things at once. Yes. And we don't have to put those feelings at odd. Because mm-hmm. if I think as adoptive parents, if we say, okay, if they feel bad about this, mm-hmm. then they must not feel joy over here. And I just don't think that's the case. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of times it's, I love my adoptive family so much mm-hmm. and I love my first family so much and I don't want them to be at odds. Yeah. I, I can miss, I can love one and miss the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Did you get the corkboard stuff back? I have to know. We did. We did. Oh, we thank God. Stuff back. We did. We did. <sighs> We got that back and we got some other precious things back and, you know, have it already. Those are the things that we're like, yes. Yeah. You can buy a new couch. Yeah, exactly. Like, you can buy a new couch, but you, and I could buy a new corkboard. But the things that were sent from first family, 
are the thing. That's what he was asking about. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you got that. Um, so listen, your book is titled, It Takes More Than Love. We've obviously talked about this in this interview so far, but overall, tell me about that statement. Why is it? Because, you know, love makes a family. Like that's mm-hmm. like a f- cute thing to say. And and there's so many people probably listening to this thinking, look, if you love someone enough, like it's enough, like that's enough. Like you love them and you accept them and whatever, and that's going to be enough for them. Why is it not enough in this situation? Yeah. yeah I, I think there's some misguided good intentions again, because mm-hmm. love does make a family. I have a t-shirt that says it. In fact, yeah. I love wearing it when I'm out. I like Sam's clothes, but I'm like, y'all don't ask me about my kids. Yeah. yeah love yeah, makes yeah. a family. Look <laughs> at my shirt. Just read it and move along. Totally. Um, so there, there's truth in that, but it's not a full truth. Mm-hmm. Um, love is a catalyst for action. Um, and so love makes a family. Love is the fuel that you'll need on hard days. Mm-hmm. Love is a thing that says, hey, you know what? I'm going to lay down my pride. And I'm going to ask for help. Mm-hmm. I'm going to find a licensed counselor who can walk me through this trauma mm-hmm. because I'm not, a, I'm not a licensed counselor. I'm, I'm a parent. I'm going to find a church community that represents and affirms all of my children's dignity um, because love is not just enough. We also know that representation matters in a healthy racial identity development in kids. And so um, love is a beautiful thing. It is an incredibly important thing. Um, And and I don't want to understate it in any way. It's critical to an adoptive family, but it, it doesn't only take love. It takes Love plus action. Yeah. Love plus seeing your kids' needs. Love plus being selfless and laying down your preferences or your pride or whatever it is that's holding you back or maybe shame mm-hmm. from saying, oh man, I'm late to the game on these conversations on race and saying, you know what? I didn't know then, but now I know. Mm-hmm. And because it takes more than love, um, I'm going to use this love that I have to, to be a catalyst for me to pursue growth and change and education and learning. And I'm going to be the best parent I can be to support my kids. Yeah. Um, and so, so I don't want to undersell love, mm-hmm. but it, it's not all you need. It's, it's yeah. a completely incomplete pic- picture. We're just like, you just love a kid. You mm-hmm. just love them, put a roof over their head. And if we're honest, even in parenting biological children, that's not true. Yeah. Like, like it's just not true. Even yeah. in, if we didn't adopt our kids, it doesn't just take love. Absolutely. We have to see our kids and um, and get tools when we need help and not assume that we have all the answers. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a freedom in saying, I'm an imperfect parent who is loved by God mm-hmm. and I'm going to make mistakes, but here's what I'm going to do when I make mistakes. I am going to allow love to fuel me to repentance, restoration, mm-hmm. and then putting together any changes I need to make so that my family can thrive. Mm-hmm. Um And so that's why I said it takes more than love because I think in adoption circles, it was so common, so common Mm -hmm. that just love a kid. Yep. Love a kid. Give them a roof over their head, clothes on their backs and food on the table. They'll be fine. And it's just not the case, especially with kids who've experienced trauma. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So why is this conversation important for people who aren't necessarily in the adoption triad, meaning an adoptee, an adoptive parent or a first family? Like if you're not one of those 
why is this conversation still important to have and to listen to and to be part of? Yeah, well, if you think about it, if you're part of a, if, especially if you're part of a church family, mm-hmm. um, the church, regardless of denomination, has been so incredibly important um, and involved in adoption circles mm-hmm. over the last three decades. And so I have no doubt in my mind that if you're listening to this and you think about it long and hard enough, you are probably connected to either an adoptee, a birth parent, or an adoptive parent. Totally. There's there's no doubt in my mind that that's the case. And, or you might even be surprised. I was I was actually at our restaurant today and was talking with a guest and um, they're asking about something. And she's like, oh, this is my daughter. Oh, she's adopted. And I was like, cool. But yeah. like, she's an adult adoptee. And I was like, awesome. Nice to meet you. And um, you'll just, I think you'll be surprised. And they're both, yeah. they're both of the same ethnicity. So you, I wouldn't have known it. It wasn't an obvious adoption. And so right. um, I think you'd be surprised how many people have been adopted mm-hmm. um, and how many people uh, or maybe a birth mom you know, at the restaurant that you yeah. attend. Maybe your server's a birth mom. Maybe your mm-hmm. server is, um, you know, a, a birth father. Mm-hmm. And so I'd say all people are connected to it. Um, but the second thing is, is we all have a role to play. Mm-hmm. Um, we all have a role to play. And uh, we have such a crisis right now in the foster care system. But we also have a crisis right now with women mm-hmm. with unexpected pregnancies yeah. and how we're going to meet them. and. And so I think being connected to this conversation, listening in, mm-hmm. and even if you're saying, I don't want to adopt, maybe you're in your 50s, 60s, you're like, I'm, I'm beyond that phase. Y'all. Yeah. I'm, I'm not stepping into this. You can, one, you can learn more so you can support the adoptive families and adoptees and birth moms in your life. Mm-hmm. That is such a gift. But also maybe these conversations will spark something in you mm-hmm. to where you can actually play an important role at the root of the issue. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can say, I'm not going to adopt or foster right now, but I, you know, I think the Lord's calling me to do, I could call our local foster care agency and say, Hey, do you have any single women or parents right now who have their rights temporarily separated from their kids but who are really trying to get their lives on track? Who'd want to be mentored. Mm. Who'd want to, um, you know, maybe come to church with me or mm-hmm. come to our house and eat, or maybe they need a job. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, you know, you could brainstorm and I, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I mm-hmm. do believe as Christians, um, we're connected to the Holy spirit and that was some holy imagination. We can really, as we kind of broaden our horizons and broaden the conversation of what we're talking about and who we're seeing, mm-hmm. we can maybe get to the root issue of mm-hmm. this and to where I don't believe we'll ever live in a world where adoptions don't exist, um, yeah. but maybe there could be fewer, fewer yeah. needs for them. And if yeah. so, praise God to that end. And I know that that feels weird as an adoptive parent saying, maybe, right. family, <laughs> maybe praise God to that end that adoptions won't exist. But what if we worked hard yeah. to keep families together for family preservation? Mm-hmm. What if we worked hard to support single moms who found themselves with unexpected pregnancies and welcome mm-hmm. them in without shame? Yeah. What if we, we could, could just broaden our eyes and say, there's an idea out there that I've not come up with that the Lord lays on your heart to be a part of this. Mm-hmm. and so. This conversation, I think, in the book specifically, um, yes, it's for adoptive families. Yes, it's for people who are supporting adoptive families and adoptees and birth families. But I really was hoping it'd be a book for the whole church mm-hmm. so that we could say, let's get after this a little bit better. Let's mm-hmm. let's know better and do better. And then let's ask the Lord, what can we do to help bring about restoration that thy kingdom come here mm-hmm. and now on earth as it is in heaven mm-hmm. and, and kind of hope goodness and mercy um, 
over these people in severe crisis where they're at risk for family separation. What can mm-hmm. we do? Yeah. And so, um, um, I, I think it's tempting mm-hmm. for anyone listening out there to say, ah, this doesn't impact me, yeah. but it does. It yeah. really does. And you can play a pivotal role, regardless of whatever season of life you're in mm-hmm. into, into bringing about kind of God's will here and now mm-hmm. on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. That's beautiful. That is so beautiful. I know that I was impacted by this book. I know others will too. So listen, where can we find you online? Where can we find your book? You can find my book on Amazon, Target Online, Barnes and Nobles, anywhere where books are sold online. It's there. Um, And um, you can find me at my website, BrittanyNSalmon.com. And I'm most active on Instagram, which again is Brittany and Salmon. Mm-hmm. Um, I have other, I, I'm on Twitter, but I'm like on and off and then on and off. Yeah. Again. So yep. Instagram, Instagram is where I hang out most. Perfect. We will link all of that in the show notes. Brittany, I cannot thank you enough. This was such an awesome conversation. Your insight is just beyond. I know that this book is going to help so many people. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Truly. Is my pleasure. I loved chatting with you for real. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CaitlinElliott.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, if you want to toss us a five-star rating, I would love you forever. Check us out next week for another new episode. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at so.what.else. Editing and all that stuff by Matt Carpenter with Parable Productions. 